0: So last fall, we started a study in the book of, anybody? Revelation, Revelation, yes. And and Revelation really kind of can be broken up into into three major areas and what it reveals. It reveals what was, what is, and what is to come. And we covered chapter one, which is covering what was. And it was the revelation of Jesus Christ in his fullness. And really, the end of the day, that is the full purpose of Revelation, to understand who Jesus is in his fullness. From the beginning of time, he has been there as a part of creation, orchestrating the story of God's grace and mercy through the Old Testament, coming as a child in the new, dying and rising again, and then one day coming again as a conquering king. And that's the what, we, what will be part of Revelation. And, and, and that's what we're getting ready to go into today. We took seven weeks over the last couple months, covered what is in the seven churches, what Christ saw in those churches, the encouragements, also the instruction, also the reprimands that hopefully spoke to us in our lives as well. And Today, I think, I have no idea, but I'm guessing for the next three months, we'll go on this journey of what will be. I know churches that have done this in 10 weeks. I know churches that have done this in 40. So I tried mapping this out several times and it's, you know, along talking to Tim Kopko, and I'm like, I have no idea. So we'll just see what happens. All of humanity, in my opinion, wants to know what is going to happen in the end. Whether you're religious or not, we want to know how things are going to end. This is all the time watching the news or watching science, they'll talk about it. a billion years, the sun will explode or what have you. Or you watch blockbuster movies. Anybody love like Earth destroyed, everything's gone, total destruction movies, anybody? You know, Yeah, yeah, they're, they're great. Yeah, Armageddon, right? You know, asteroids, earthquakes, you know, whatever it may be, love, we have this, idea of how are things going to end. And I think that's because inside of our souls, we know that things will come to an end. Revelation reveals to us what that's going to look like. And so my prayer is through this series, we will start thinking in new ways about how things are going to end. And I'm not talking about busting charts out on the walls. You know, you've seen all those colorful charts and timelines and looking forward to that day. Instead, we'll think of the end and what it means and it'll impa- impact to how we live today. Because I believe far too many Christians in this world, they don't live with the end in mind. They live with the hope of the end, but it doesn't affect how they live, their passions, their pursuits, where they spend their time, where they spend their energy. I pray we'll be motivated, driven, and encouraged by what we read through these next 18 or so chapters. That the end will change how we live now. As we get a fuller understanding of Jesus Christ and and what he is going to do. Amen, church? If you remember, the man who wrote Revelation was John. Same guy who wrote the gospel, John, that we spent some time in last year. Same guy who wrote first, second, and third, John. He was the last survivor of the original 12 disciples. He's an elderly man now. He's been banished to the, the island of Patmos, which you can still visit now, the middle of the Aegean Sea, right off of what was the coast of the time at Ephesus. He was banned there for preaching the gospel. And this is where God chose to reveal himself to John. And today we are gonna jump into chapter four as there's a new part of this revelation that begins to unfold. I'm gonna read it for you and you can read on the screen as well as we go through it. Revelation chapter four, verse one. He says, after this, I looked, speaking to the revelation of the churches in two and three, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here. And I will show you what must soon take place. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Created by your will, they existed and were created. This is the word of the Lord. There's one thing I want you to keep in mind when reading the book of Revelation. The entire book is not meant to be taken literally, which is good because there's some weird stuff in here. Let's just say it. It's not unholy to say that. There is some weird stuff. When you have four creatures that are full of eyes, that's weird. We can say that. Now, some of it is literal, but some of it's meant to be symbolic. And I think the purpose of Revelation is not to understand every single detail because not every single detail is made clear. If God wanted to make it clear, he did, but he did not. I think the meaning of Revelation is to understand the purpose. That's what's important. What is the purpose of what God is revealing to us? What does he want to take from it? For example, the throne of God. Is, was there a real throne? Is, is, does God sit on a throne all the time? Like a king we would see in ancient t- in times, even though he's spirit? Or was it a symbol of God's sovereign rule and authority? It's true when reading Revelation that we don't know what we do not know. Even these pictures that we put up, you know, I, I, I'm hesitant to pull them up because they probably have nothing to do, they probably have, don't look like anything that we imagine, but I wanted to get us some creativity going in our minds. We don't have a full understanding to grasp what John saw. So we gotta walk humbly through the pages of Revelation say, God, what are you trying to reveal to us? What are you keeping hidden? And what are you meaning for us? (coughs) Excuse me. So what I want to do with that in mind is I'm going to walk through some of the things that we just read, and I'm going to try to give some context to it. But most of the time, I'm just going to say I don't know. uh, And then I'm going to try to pull some meaning for us at the end. So the first thing you see is that... John sees God, and he, sees, he talks about these precious stones of jasper and, and carnelian, which is kind of a reddish color, in, in case you don't know. Um, and, and really, what these point to is God's majesty and his glory. And you're going to see this later towards the very end of Revelation. And then you see a rainbow around his throne. Now, you remember when we studied Genesis 1 through 11, a rainbow symbolizes God's covenant, his faithfulness to always keep his promises that are full of his grace and they're they're full of his mercy. After that, we see in verse four that there were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Now there's different theories on who these elders could be. Some think they could be angels, though in the Bible you never see angels sitting on thrones. They're always serving as ministering spirits, helping to carry out the will of God. Some think it could be like the 12 apostles and like 12, the, the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel, and it's like showing the continuity between the Old and the New Testament peoples. Uh, 24 is also a significant number if you've ever read Chronicles. King David, he had, he had 24 priestly gatekeepers. He had, uh, he had 24 priestly worship leaders. They didn't all sing at the same time, of course. They had 24 priests. And so that these 24 elders may represent having something to do um, with the church and all of creation worshiping God. But at the end, we just don't know. They play some kind of priestly leadership role, but we don't know who they are but we'll find out one day. Then in verse five, we get another interesting phrase. After the the flashes of lightning and the peals of thunder, you see the seven spirits of God. Now, some believe that these are angels. Some also believe that this is a symbolism for the fullness of the Holy Spirit. The number seven in the Bible means completion. Fullness can mean perfection. And so even though there's one Holy Spirit, the same seven spirit is, is speaking to the fullness and the, uh, um, and, the, and the perfection of the Holy Spirit at work in the world. Again, we don't know, but we'll find out one day. And then the one that freaked me out as a kid and made me not want to go to heaven, the four living creatures, a lion, an ox, one with the face of a man, and one with the face of an eagle. Each of them having six wings and are all full of eyes around them. It's like a zoo from a horror movie. Like, I did not want to go to heaven when I read this because like, that's weird, right? Now, most likely these are a type of angel. You see the prophet Ezekiel, you see the prophet Isaiah, both speak to creatures like this and they were always angels. So most likely these are angels. That doesn't make them any less freaky, a little less scary. Especially when they're surrounded by eyes. But we have to remember that these beings, these angels, possibly, probably, were created by God. God does pretty good work. So they're probably beautiful to behold. We don't know what's literal about this description. We don't know what's symbolic. But whatever it is, they are, I'm sure, beautiful to behold. I mean, being covered in eyes, do they really have eyes all over them? Probably not. I, my guess is it's symbolizing their awareness, their alertness. Uh, their comprehensive knowledge. I mean, they're not omniscient like God, but like nothing pertaining to their duties escapes their scrutiny, escapes their sight. They see it all. Now, why does God choose these forms? Well, different theories for that. I'm not going to go into all of them. One of the popular ones is that that they represent different uh, parts of creation, uh, especially, and this is something that would have meant something to the Jewish culture, Like the lion represents wild creatures, Uh, a calf uh, represents domestic animals, Uh, the eagle represents flying creatures, Uh, and man as the, the pinnacle and the lead of all creation. But we really don't know for sure, but we'll find out one day. Now, even though their parents may be symbolic, their existence isn't. Because as we will go on to see here, even starting uh, in a couple of weeks, they're deeply involved with the coming judgments of God. So they're real. They're going to be there. Hopefully they just look different than this. (laughs) So I hope that gives you some ideas on what these different phrases could possibly mean. But at the end of the day, we just don't know, but we'll find out one day. Now, what's most important about this chapter is not understanding who the elders are or understanding who the creatures are. God did not, if he wanted to make that clear, he would have, but it's understanding what it is that they are doing. In Revelation 4, verse 10, it says that the elders cast all their crowns at the Lord's feet. I love that. As the creatures worship these four angels, somehow they've earned this position. I don't know how God has given them this position. It's obviously a position position of some type of priestly authority, who knows? And yet their response to this is to, to take their crowns that they have been given and to place them before God. As in is in a way of saying lord everything that i have comes from you i have nothing without you this is all belongs to you i love that i love that what are they doing in this moment what are these acts of they're acts of worship the acts of taking their crowns off and setting them before the lord the acts of singing they're acts of worship you know, of all the things that God could reveal to us, I mean, he could have jumped right to the judgments. He could have right, right to the bowls, right to the trumpets. But he starts with this picture of worship. This is the first thing that he shows us. And I believe because he wants us to be reminded of who he is. All throughout scripture, he is reminding everybody of who he is. The beginning of the Ten Commandments, he says, you are to worship nobody else. There is only one I am, and it is me. And you look at these songs of praise. They're, they're praising God, and the words that they use, they're talking about the power and, and the might of God. I mean, when, when, they, when they say the term almighty here, this, this term, it, it identifies God as the strongest most powerful being, utterly devoid of of weakness. No one can oppose him. He is almighty. And because God is mighty, he can effortlessly do whatever he wills to do. Reminds me of 1 Chronicles 16, verses 28 through 30, where he says, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. (coughs) Ascribe to the Lord the glory, do his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved. Let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, and let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. (coughs) Sorry, I'm coughing so much. I'm an assistant basketball coach on three teams. I've worn my voice out yelling at children. (laughs) The opening of John's vision is God upon his throne in all his power and sovereignty and his majesty. Worship is the centerpiece of heaven, it is the priority of heaven. And it makes me think when I read this, is the worship of God the centerpiece of my life? If someone were to look at my life and say, yeah, what's at the center? They'd say the worship of the Lord. Like all of creation, do all the areas of my life worship the Lord? Worship is the centerpiece of heaven not because just he not because he is worthy which we just talked about because we also we don't always think about this we have a need to worship you and i the bible teaches are designed with a need to worship we're not designed to be self-sufficient i believe that's the great lie of the devil would, i mean look at the garden of eden when we study genesis I mean, what was his first lie? He's like, man, eat this fruit and you can be like God. You won't need God anymore. What was the first lie of heaven? Satan looking in the mirror saying, man, I look good. I could do this whole God thing better than he can. I don't need to worship him, I should be worshiped. It's a lie because God has ingrained us a need to worship whether we recognize that need or not. And, and, and what do you see? What happens when they believe this lie? Everything becomes ugly and painful. And you juxtapose that versus what we see in heaven and, then, and we see beauty. Everything is beautiful as they are worshiping the Lord because they're doing what God has created them to do. Whether we admit it or not, we all worship something. Every single one of us, we worship something. We all bow down to something. I mean, take some, you see it and you see this all throughout humanity, this need to worship. Take a football fan, right? Conference championships are today. Thankful they're not during church service time because we'd have a lot less people in church. When I was on the West Coast, the Seahawks had a 10 a.m. game because that's when they start over there. I guarantee you, I knew church would be half as full. Right? The football fan, it's the object of his joy, of his adoration. He'll read about it. He'll study the statistics. He talks about it more than everything else. You read his social media page, all that he posts about. Sundays, he will spend a great deal of time and effort and money to to behold and be in the presence of his adoration. He'll be out in harsh elements. It could be 10, 10 degrees below, and he'll be out there with no shirt on, with like an S or something painted on his chest. And when, and when they win, his whole posture changes. He's full of joy and excitement and he praises and he screams and he shouts and he's glowing. When, you loo- when he, they lose, you do not wanna be in his presence. That's worship. That's worship. I'm not saying it's not okay to, it, it's bad to get excited about football. But there's a difference between enjoying something and it becoming the main focus of your time and your money and your energy and your joy. Other ways people worship, I mean, look at at celebrities. Have you ever read, anybody history buff in here? Nobody, okay, I got one, a couple. If you ever read history or just watch it on the History Channel, because it's much cooler, right? The history of kings and queens in this world is a terrible history. It's a history of uh, of tyranny, uh, uh, of exploitation, of, of slavery. And yet any country that still has a king or queen, like people are obsessed with them. Like there's this book that what Prince Harry put out, some book about his trauma being like the prince. I don't know what it's about. I don't even care. But it's like at the top of the bestseller list. In America, like we broke away from England a long time ago, right? Big old war. And we're still obsessed. Like Marie and I, we watch the news every night. And it's like this book coming out is a part of the news. And I'm like, who cares? Now, look, if you get into this, I don't mean no offense. But like the the passion that, that countries put into their king and queen Or when you take America or any country that doesn't have kings and queens, what do we? We do the same thing to celebrities. The same thing. We take the super rich, the super, the the super valuable, uh, uh, beautiful, uh, the super athletic, and we put them on a throne. There's TV channels, donated. Just focus completely on celebrities, and they stay in business. They thrive magazines that thrive just focusing on these people and how to be like them. Why do we do this? Because the Bible says that we all have a need to worship. We all have a need to take an object in our lives and to look at it, to to find value, to find worth, for it to be a mirror of our worth in our existence. We all do it. Okay, some of us, this mirror that we use, it's none of the things that I mentioned. It could be our careers, men. Okay, that's, that's what we worship our careers. Sometimes, especially ladies, we can worship our families. That's the mirror of our worth. Parents, I think this feels more true today than it did in the past. We worship our children their efforts and what they pursue becomes more important than anything else. I remember in Seattle watching families that would sacrifice everything for their children's sports, training their children to worship sports because money would be sacrificed, time and energy would be sacrificed to that more than anything else. Teenagers will hold up beauty and will hold up popularity, especially if we're in school as the things that we worship, to be like the cool kids, to be like the beautiful people we see in our magazines or our websites. We all have a need to worship, a need to find value in something that is greater than ourselves. Now, some will say, I don't go crazy like these other people. I don't worship anything. I, first, I've been a pastor long enough that I'd say, that's not true. Just give me some time, we'll figure out what it is. But I also find that when we turn ourselves off and we say, I don't worship anything, I don't pour myself into anything, what we do is we kill our soul. We we kill off this piece of humanity that God has given us. We lose our our joy and our drive and our passion in life because we're all meant to worship. You might know some of those people. You just kind of die inside. Archbishop William Temple, you said this, if you want to know what you really worship, if you want to know what you really treasure, if you want to know what your, your, your God is, think about where your mind goes during solitude. When you have nothing else to think about, where does your mind go first? When you need to make decisions in life, where do you turn to first? What do, you, what do you dream about? What do you worry about not happening without effort? What gets first priority in your life? What is at the top of the list that nothing else loses out to? He calls that the solitude test of what you worship. Is the answer God and his will that you find in his word, or is it something else? Second, there's the what he called the nightmare test. And he said the nightmare test is if you were to lose something, what is it that you could lose that would be so devastating to you that it would just drive you to throw yourself off a bridge that would crush you and devastate you to such ends that you would be unable to move forward in life? What is your greatest nightmare to lose? Is it God or is it something else? If it is anything else but God, then there's a part of your heart that is not worshiping God. These are the tests that show where the emotional wealth of your heart is invested. What you put on the throne. Now, maybe you have God on the throne, but you might have a couple other thrones right next to God that have equal place. Or you might put God on the throne on Sunday morning But the other six days away, you ask him to step down and put in something else. What sits on the throne in your heart? What is it that you worship? Revelation 4 shows us God on the throne because he is worthy. It shows us God on the throne and us worshiping because we need to worship him. And it's an amazing thing that happens when we choose to worship him. It's not all for him. There's, there's effects of worship in his life. I think that when you choose to worship God, that's when you become like these elders in this scene in heaven, you become... You become beautiful in your own life. As you begin to experience the effects of worship, you become courageous. You become strong. I mean, if you remember the seven letters that were read to these churches, they were about to go through some hard times. He did not say, I'm gonna save you all. He said, no, it's going to get worse for some of you. How would they be able to proceed through that? if they knew that there was a God that was greater than all of these things, that in his time and his sovereign will, he'd put a stop to all of it. That nothing could overcome him. So unlike a human father, your heavenly father would be there to care for you, even if he allowed you to go through it. It would bring them strength and encouragement. And it does to us as well, that for those who truly worship God, there is nothing, that nightmare test, there's nothing there. There are things that will break your heart. There are things that, would, that would, would feel devastating to you for a while because we're human and we're meant to love and to have attachments. But at the end of the day, the overwhelming sovereignty of God and his hand upon your life and, and the short, short term of pain in this life and the understanding of, of, of eternity in heaven with you would override those things and bring healing to you. Another effect of worshiping God is that our value and our beauty are found in Him. Some of you sitting in here, and I don't mean this because I'm calling you out, I just, by sheer percentages, some of you, you don't take criticism well. You cannot be criticized. You can't handle disappointment. You have no confidence in yourself. You're crushed easily, you're defeated easily. You go up for short periods, but you go down for much longer ones. If what I described is part of you, that means there's part of you that is not fully worshiping God. There's something missing. You're, you're trying to find all that God gives you in something else. But when you begin to put him on his throne, you know, mind, you don't put him on his throne, he's on his throne. When you begin to realize he is on the throne, These struggles begin to fade. You can handle criticism because you're loved by God. So you don't have to be perfect. In fact, you're not surprised when you get something wrong because only God is perfect. You have confidence to to handle anything that comes your way because you know that you have God's strength to get you through. You're never crushed because no one can take what has given you. You're never too far down because you know he is sovereign. You're also never too full of pride because you're always willing to take your crown and lay it before him because you know that everything that you have comes from him. Your beauty and your understanding of your worth is not found in a magazine or a website or or in other people. It's found that you are created by the Almighty and that is enough for you. I can only imagine what worshiping God will be like in heaven. But as Christians, if you sit here and your faith and trust is in Jesus, you can't. You can't wait. You can't wait for heaven to begin worshiping him. You have to worship him now. He needs to be the center point of your life. It, uh, Plato not a Christian, philosopher, he gave this uh, cave analogy. And it, and it helps me kind of think about all of this. He says, suppose a man is born in a cave and he spends his entire life tied to a post. And he faces the wall at the rear of the cave. So here's the opening, here's the wall, and he's tied and all he sees is the wall. And, and, but there's light from the outside. And so the light shines from behind him as he stares at the wall. And so he sees shadows, of people and animals walking by. The shadows are dim, but they're all that he knows. They're all that he sees. To speak of the world outside of the cave, made of colors and, and multiple dimensions, it, it, he wouldn't believe it because he can't see it. But what if this man, saved in his cave, what if he had a mirror in his hand? And this mirror, could see outside of the cave and the things passing by and the light and and the dimension and the colors. How would that change his his perception of his environment? He would see things as they really are and would give him hope and joy and a desire to be there. When we worship God in our lives, It's like we hold up the mirror. See, this is the world and all the darkness and the pain and our insecurity and our fear and our emptiness. But when we hold up the mirror, we're getting this reflection of heaven. We can't see it clearly because we're not there yet. We're not there, but we get these glimpses of the beauty of our worth in Him and His love and His sovereignty. And I don't know when I hold up that mirror in my life, when I'm reading His Word, and I'm serving in Him, and, and I'm singing to Him, and I'm not just singing words, but I'm really singing to Him, and I get that glimpse. I get filled with hope. I get filled with joy. I get filled with peace. I get filled with meaning, and, and I don't see all of this anymore. I just I see just what's in the mirror, and I get excited because I know one day, one day what I see in here. I'll be able to experience for myself. This is why it's so important in our lives that we won't wait until heaven to begin to worship him. That we, in the same way as these creatures, call out to him and we set our crowns before him because we're ever presently aware that he is the one on the throne. Amen, church?